this has been such a great series. I've, uh, man, I've just really enjoyed our study this last couple of weeks. Uh, we have been examining four uh, pictures of salvation. I was at the men's retreat last weekend up in the valley, and I had four sessions, and I did this in front of like 140 men that I don't know. I said, we have four sessions this weekend. That's three. Anyways, I didn't do that this morning. I got it right. We have four. Four images that the scriptures uh, provide for us to help us understand our salvation. Uh, the first image that we looked at which the, was the image of propitiation, which isn't a word that works its way into very many of our conversations. But that image is the sacrifice on the altar, uh, the destruction of sin. The second picture uh, we looked at was proceedings in a courtroom, and we talked about justification that uh, from one vantage point, our salvation is a legal matter, and we have been declared righteous. The trial is over for those who have placed their faith in Jesus, right? And then last week, Edson, bless his heart, powered through not only a, uh, not only a, a sound system that didn't want to work, but a sound system that didn't want to work except for the random explosion, right? And uh, Edson, I'm just so thankful. Uh, the picture, the third one, the one that he unpacked was reconciliation. And that is that uh, because of salvation, we have been brought into a family. We have been included into a family. Uh, he told the story of his own uh, son's adoption. Just. Such a beautiful story. We all have been adopted into the family of God. So uh, this morning, we're going to unpack the fourth uh, picture. I want to read you something. This is uh, actually from quite some time ago. Uh, this is from 1859. I want to read you the description uh, of a, uh, a massive slave auction um, that happened in Savannah, Georgia, a century and a half ago. So I'm going to read this, and I'll, I'll confess to you before I read this uh, that I've never read any recounting of our nation's history uh, with slavery that is enjoyable to read. Uh, it's, it's painful. Uh, it's shameful. Um, it's brutal oftentimes, uh, but I want, to, I want to help us capture an image. In early March, 1859, an enormous slave auction took place at the race course three miles outside of Savannah, Georgia. 436 slaves were to be put on the auction block, including men, women, children, and infants. 
Word of the sale had spread through the South for weeks, drawing potential buyers from North and South Carolina, Virginia, Georgia, Alabama, and Louisiana. All of Savannah's available hotel rooms and any other lodging spaces were quickly appropriated by the influx of visitors. In the days running up to the auction, daily excursions were made from the city to the race course to inspect, evaluate, and determine an appropriate bid for the human merchandise on display. The sales magnitude was the result of the breakup of an old family estate that included two plantations. The majority of the slaves had never been sold before. Most had spent their entire lives on one of the two plantations included in the sale. The rules of the auction stipulated that the slaves would be sold as families, defined as a husband and wife and any offspring. However, there was no guarantee that this rule would be adhered to in all cases. The sale gained such renown that it attracted the attention of Horace Greeley, editor of the New York Tribune, one of America's most influential newspapers at the time. Greeley was an abolitionist, staunchly opposed to slavery. He sent a reporter to cover the auction in order to reveal to his readers the barbarity inherent in one being's ability to own and sell another. This is what he wrote. The slaves remained at the race course, some of them for more than a week, and all of them for four days prior to the sale. They were brought in early that buyers who desired to inspect them might enjoy that privilege, although none of them were sold at private sale. For these preliminary days, their shed was constantly visited by speculators. The Negroes were examined with as little consideration as if they had been brutes indeed. The buyers pulling their mouths open to see their teeth, pinching their limbs to find how muscular they were, walking them up and down to detect any signs of lameness, making them stoop and bend in different ways that they might be certain there was no concealed rupture or wound. And in addition to all of this treatment, asking them scores of questions relative to their qualifications and accomplishments. All of these humiliations were submitted to without a murmur, and in some instances, with good-natured cheerfulness, where the slave liked the appearance of the proposed buyer and fancied that he might prove himself. If you can imagine, Someone's going to buy you and own you for the rest of your live-long days. You may have an invested interest in who that person is, right? 
The following curiously sad scene is the type of a score of others that were enacted. Elisha, chattel number five in the catalog, had taken a fancy to a benevolent-looking middle-aged gentleman who was inspecting the stock and thus used his powers of persuasion to induce the benevolent man to purchase him with his wife and his boy and his girl, Molly, Israel, and Savannah, chattel number six, seven, and eight. The earnestness with which the poor fellow pressed his suit, knowing as he did that perhaps the happiness of his whole life depended on his success, it was interesting, and the arguments he used were most pathetic. He made no appeal to the feelings of the buyer. He rested no hope on his charity and kindness, but he only strove to show how well worth his dollars were, the bone and blood that he was entreating him to buy. Look at me, master. In prime rice planter. Show you won't find a better man than me. No better on the whole plantation. Not a bit old yet. Do more work than ever. Do carpenter work too? A little. Better buy me, massa. I'd be a good servant. Molly too. My wife. It's a first-rate rice hand. Almost as good as me. Stand out here, Molly. Let the gentleman see. So Molly advances. With her hand crossed, her hands crossed on her bosom, makes a quick, short curtsy and stands mute looking appealingly in the benevolent man's face. But Elisha talks all the faster. Show the master your arm, Molly. Good arm. She do a heap of work more with that arm. Let good master see your teeth, Molly. See that? Teeth are all regular, all good. She's a young gal yet. Come out here, Israel. Walk around and let the gentleman see how spry you be. And then, pointing to the three-year-old, who stood with her chubby hand to her mouth, holding onto her mother's dress, and uncertain what to make of the strange scene. Little Vardy's only a child yet. Make a prime gal by and by. You better buy us, master. We have first-rate bargain. And so on. But the benevolent gentleman found where he could drive a better bargain and so bought somebody else. It's rough even to read, isn't it? I was doing some digging on old records, uh, actually in preparation for this morning. Charleston, uh, South Carolina, 
during this period. Uh, I've been to Charleston, South Carolina a couple of times. During this time, downtown Charleston, South Carolina had 40 slave auction houses within a four block radius uh, where people were brought and trafficked and sold. Of course, we know that uh, slavery, human ownership is not new to America's history. If you track back to the time of the New Testament, uh, the people of Israel, the Jews, had they were the subject of conquest. The, the Roman Empire had spread out and had subjugated a large number of different people groups, including the Jews. And as they expanded through conquest, they would take ownership of the people in the areas that they had claimed and uh, would make them slaves. Most Most of the Roman slaves were slaves by conquest. Some of them were born into slavery. To be a slave, of course, meant to lose all authority to govern your life and your purpose. So if you had, if you had certain mental capacities that they would identify, then you would be a slave doing clerical work. If you weren't that bright but strong, then you would do uh, manual labor. Many of the slaves were uh, prostitutes. They were live-in prostitutes that were owned by their masters to fulfill their own sexual appetites. And of course, we know this, but it bears saying, because of the direction that I'm heading, slaves were not slaves by their own choice. Their shackles were not their own decision. They were enslaved against their will, and for many born into slavery, it was all they had ever known. Slave could not will their own freedom They could not deliver it to themselves. To buy your own freedom, you would have to pay the price owed for your ownership, which for many would be an impossible task, even stretched over a lifetime. In some of the records I read in uh, talking about American slavery, some of the slaves would actually pretend to be injured to drive down their price to make it more likely that they could over time save up enough money to match that price and buy their own freedom, which is a risky deal because sometimes there would be other negative consequences with feigning an injury. The price paid to take ownership of a slave was paid to his or her captors or owners And in the era of the scriptures of the New Testament, 
that price that was paid to secure ownership was known as a ransom. And the transaction was referred to as redemption. Redemption is the fourth image that the scriptures offer us to better understand the nature of our salvation. Redemption in the biblical era is simply a marketplace transaction. A marketplace transaction whereby a ransom is paid to free a person from an insurmountable debt of servitude. That's the image of redemption. So I want to unpack this a little bit. We don't have a bunch of time. But I want to do kind of like I did with justification. I want to look at the doctrine of redemption now that you have the image in your mind of what redemption is. What is the doctrine of uh, uh, redemption? What are the consequences of redemption? And then I want to end with the experience of redemption. What does it mean to walk in that? Again, I'm going to go fairly quickly here. The doctrine of redemption, number one, redemption is for those who mourn the loss of their freedom. Not everyone mourns the loss of their freedom. If you've lived very long, you've watched people clearly enslaved defend their enslavement. Redemption is for those who mourn the loss of their freedom. The Jews... At the time of the writing of the New Testament, the Jews had lost their freedom to Roman conquest. I don't know if you remember, we've covered this story before, but Anna, the woman in the temple who prayed, the widow who met the baby Jesus, who met Mary and Joseph, you remember her? Listen to what, she, what it says about her, Luke 2.38. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak to him, to all of those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem, looking for someone to buy us out of slavery, to buy us out of bondage. If you fast forward to the end of Jesus' life, he's been crucified, he's resurrected, and he's kind of hiding, and then he meets the two guys on the road to Emmaus. You remember this? And he says, what are you guys so sad about? And they said, where have you been? And he said, well, tell me more. And this is what they said, Luke 24, 21. We were hoping that he was going to redeem Israel. We were hoping that he was the one who would buy our freedom because we cannot buy it for ourselves. We cannot secure it for ourselves. We cannot will our way out of bondage. And we thought that Jesus was the guy who would purchase for us our freedom. Ah, but just wait. Collectively, there was no question the Jews had lost their freedom of self-governance. Their national identity had been taken captive by the Romans, 
But redemption, understood as the way it's presented in Scripture, is not just collectively for the nation of Israel. Redemption through Jesus is for you and for me. Titus 3.3, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Okay, this question is only for those who are 50 and older in the room. You're going to share your personal testimony with those who are younger than 50. If you're 50 and older, how many of you have ever profoundly experienced what it means to feel enslaved to sin? Yeah. It's the human experience. It's the human experience that we were born into, right? I didn't have to will myself to enslavement. And yet... There are, there are appetites that Titus speaks of. There are appetites in me that have, that have captured control. Redemption is for those who loathe their own loss of self-governance, for those who loathe sin's enslavement. If you're tired of being a slave, if you're tired of not having control over your own destiny, having authority, self-governance. Sin keeps ruining things and corrupting, maintaining control and bondage in your life. Redemption is for you. Secondly, the blood of Jesus is the price of our redemption. Matthew 20, 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. There it is. That's the payment. Ransom was the payment by which a slave's freedom was secured. What was that ransom? Jesus, his life, his blood. Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The price of my redemption, the price for my liberation, my freedom, was the blood of Jesus. It's interesting, Ephesians is the book in the New Testament that references redemption more than any other book. And Ephesus was also the slave trading capital outside of Rome for the entire Roman world. For those listeners, redemption was something. It was the purchase of freedom. It was the end of bondage, the end of enslavement. It was the spilled blood of Jesus that purchased your freedom. When we take communion together, there's so many rich, uh, meaningful things about communion, but one of them is certainly, here is the price of my freedom, and I am free. Number three, the last thing on the doctrine of redemption, that the Holy Spirit is the receipt of our redemption. 
Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. What he's referring to is that your redemption right now is not yet fully complete. Once we, once we walk through the veil to eternity, our redemption will be complete. In the meantime, wait a minute, how do we know for sure? Because I've given you the gift of the Holy Spirit as a seal, as a proof of purchase, as a receipt that I paid the price to secure your freedom. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is the receipt of our redemption. I'll talk briefly about the consequence of redemption. What does this mean for us? Colossians 2.13 he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. Have you wrestled in your walk with the Lord? Have you wrestled with a feeling of indebtedness? I have. It's overwhelming. having forgiven us all of our transgressions and having taken that certificate of debt and stamping it as paid. That certificate of debt, Paul says, was hostile to us. And just to make sure that that certificate of debt with that paid stamp on it doesn't, doesn't end up obscured. Let's nail it up on the cross for everyone to see. Let's display it the way that the Son of God was displayed. The debt is paid. And if the debt is paid, your freedom has been secured for you. And there is no need for future payments. You can't... You will not succeed in your pursuit of righteousness if you believe that your righteousness is to, is to level the debt that you have with the Lord. It's an insufficient motivation, and it will make you a depressed person. You don't owe God anything. And as a result, you owe God everything. <laughs> I know, it's crazy, but you'll just have to work on that. Keep in mind, the reality of your freedom, the declaration of your freedom is undeniable. The debt is paid. But living in that freedom is a lifelong journey for all of us. There's a tremendous amount of confusion 
after the Emancipation of Proclamation. It's not necessarily a real straightforward thing to, to, to move from a life of slavery to a life of freedom. It's a new way of living, right? New rules. The debt has been paid. You have been set free. Now walk in it. Walk in that freedom. Lastly, the experience of redemption. I want to tell you what it's like to experience redemption. <clears throat> this week, I actually forget what day it was. I had a little, uh, I think it was a dessert. Actually, I think I was eating leftover cheesecake. Have I told you about my wife's cheesecake? Just saying. This is what redemption is. I, uh, I ate a little bit of cheesecake, cleaned out my bowl, and I took my bowl and my uh, spoon and I set them in the sink. And as I was walking out of the kitchen, it occurred to me that the bowl and the spoon are supposed to go in the dishwasher. And I know that because I've been reminded of that a few times over the years. <laughs> I'm actually really bad at remembering that. And I turn just slightly as this thought is going through my head and my wife, without a word, reached and took the bowl and the spoon out of the sink and put it in the dishwasher. The experience of redemption is the freedom we find in human relationships when our relationships don't accumulate debt over time. If you were to add up the total number of times that I've forgotten to put my uh, dish in the dishwasher, you would say it's probably grounds for divorce. I'm a slow learner in a few areas. The reason that there's a joy in my relationship with Jenny in the context of my slow learningness is that we don't accumulate debt in regards to each other. We didn't come up with that idea on our own. We used to love accumulating debt. I used to actually relish the feeling of my wife messing up and knowing that she owed me. Let's make that work for me, right? It's devious. It's dark. But it's human nature. And as both of us have grown in our understanding of the gospel, the nature of our salvation, and have enjoyed the liberty that comes when you, when you come to terms with the reality that my debt has been paid in full, it does not accumulate. Oh man, that feels good. Freedom is a gift. 
And so in my human relationships, in particular my relationship with my wife, we learn to walk in that freedom and to offer it as a gift to each other. 1 Corinthians 13.5 Love does not keep a record of wrongs. It does not accumulate indebtedness. After years of doing uh, what I do, which I love, I'll tell you the most, the most common kind of debt that we, that we hold. And by holding debt, I mean I hold someone in my debt. It's the most common kind. I've seen it a hundred, if not a thousand times. And that is the debt of words. I will not love or offer love until you say these things. Maybe it's, I'm sorry. Maybe it's, I was wrong. Maybe it's, I shouldn't have done that or I shouldn't have treated you that way. That way. And, we hold, and we hold people sometimes for years in debt to us because they haven't verbally said the right things to release themselves from that debt. And until you do, nope. But love, which God instructs us on, does not keep a record of wrongs. The experience of redemption is to know my debt has been paid, and that the people who love me love me enough to not keep a tally. They love me enough to set me free each day to grow in that love. It's the experience of redemption. I invite the worship team up. I don't have time to get into this right now, but if you want a, just a great little story on redemption, check out Philemon. It's the whole story. Philemon was a slave owner. His slave ran away. Onesimus and Paul writes Philemon. In fact, Matt Noble recently did just a fantastic teaching on this in our men's chapel. He says, I want you to cancel the debt. I want you to clear the accounts I'm willing to pay whatever he owes to purchase his freedom. That's the experience of redemption. The debt is paid. There is no future payment. The ransom of his blood has purchased for eternity your redemption. four pictures propitiation the sacrifice on the altar the destruction of sin justification proceedings in a courtroom the trial is over the verdict has been submitted reconciliation inclusion into a family you've been adopted redemption transactions in a marketplace your insurmountable debt of servitude has been paid and you are free
If you have not yet said yes to all of that, let's get busy. God has offered us an unsearchable gift in salvation. And from that gift of salvation springs all of life in Christ. If you've been been at that decision, but not past it yet, if you're still there questioning, wondering, today could be the day where you simply open your hands and say, I am in need and I will receive that gift that he's made available to me. If you're on the other side of that decision and you haven't been baptized yet, I want you to come and talk to me or Drew because baptism is all of the old laid to rest and everything new. Sin has been destroyed and removed. The trial is over. Death penalty paid, raised to new life, born into a new family, washed clean of my enslaving debt. I would invite you to consider taking that step of obedience, baptism, tangible display of a spiritual reality. Come and talk to me. Let's do it. Let's dunk you underwater. It'll be the best thing that's ever happened to you. Would you guys stand? I'm going to have prayer team ministry members over here. They would love to pray with you if you have uh, financial needs, physical needs, spiritual need, whatever it is. They would love to join with you in prayer. We have offering receptacles. We celebrate the the blood of Jesus poured out for us, his body broken with communion. I would encourage you to take this time of worship to celebrate communion together with those that are around you, with those that you're here with, or grab someone else. But we're gonna come before the Lord now and worship, and this is the goal of our worship, that we would praise the God who has made salvation available to us. Let's sing together.